So, from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation 22, in eight sermons. I mean, I should get, like, I don't know, a Twinkie or something for that, right? Um, That's kind of a big deal. Maybe it's not. But uh, we've arrived at the 66th book. Um, Of course, we've only had a singular focus throughout the series. That's why we were able to make it through the Bible so quickly. Uh, Obviously, we are looking at the forgotten attribute of God, which is, uh, as my publicist says, he likes to call it the the forgotten attribute. And uh, that's a little bit benign. It's not simply that it's forgotten, it's that it's been edited, it's been ignored, it's been redacted in the modern church. But I'll go with what he said, the forgotten attribute, wrath, vengeance, recompense, and terror is the just consequence of your sin and mine. This is the clear message of the Bible. I know it's been dumbed down in most places, but God clearly speaks in this way. We saw it two weeks ago as we talked about God's judgment of Judah and Israel, people who claim to worship Him. The people who claim to be His God had to judge them because they had drifted off into idolatry. Now, we understand the definition of idolatry, anything you love more than God. So we can be guilty. It's not about bowing down to a piece of wood. You can be guilty right now sitting here this morning. You can be guilty. Do you love, do you pursue something more than your creator? That's the definition. And we saw how the Lord judged his people in a very, Strong manner. You remember what Isaiah said. He he called them false sons who refused to listen to the instruction of the Lord. You remember what the people said. You remember. You can't help but, but think this is where we are. This is where we are. Listen to how the Old Testament Jews spoke to the prophets. Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us in pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. You know, it should be on the marquee of your average church anymore. Need an illusion? Come on in. Looking for a myth? Come on in. We're not going to tell you about the real God. We'll tell you about the pseudo-Christ, the one who merely loves, not the angry lamb who judges his enemies. The Apostle Paul said the same thing would happen in the church, and of course, here we are. You remember what he said in 2 Timothy 4, He said that your average church will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, turning their ears away from the truth and turning aside to myth. So, again, by and large, if we look at Catholicism, we look at Eastern Orthodox, and we look at the the bulk of Protestantism, they've all left the truth. We know there's a remnant church out there. We know there is, right? We know there's still churches that preach it all. Praise God. He's being magnified there. He's being, he's being held up there. He's being lifted up there. People's lives are being changed there. People are turning from their sin there. People are turning their hearts and minds toward heaven, right? Are you heavenly minded? This is not in my notes. Are you heavenly minded? You're supposed to be heavenly minded. I know that it's difficult sometimes in this fallen world that we live in, but are you looking forward to 
heaven. I've been reminding you that God continually uses the word terror and horror with respect to his judgment. Again, your average churchgoer has no concept and probably your average churchgoer couldn't even articulate that God uses these words in regard in regard to his judgment. Um, I think I shared with you. Well, here it is right here. In the NASB translation, the most literal from the original language, terror appears, appears 51 times in relation to God's judgment. Horror appears 27 times in relation to God's judgment. God says, behold, I'm going to bring terror upon you. Jeremiah 49, 5. God says, my terrors are on every side. Lamentations 2, 22. God says, I will give them over to terror. Ezekiel 23, 16. God says, I will make you a horror. 2 Chronicles 29, 8. God says, you will be seized with horror. Job 18, 20. God says, horror will overwhelm you. Isaiah 21, 4. Jim, I don't want to hear it anymore. You're going to hear it one more time. And then we're going to realize that Jesus Christ took all that terror and all that horror on himself for you and for me. This is one reason the modern church is so superficial. We have forgotten what he took for us. We we ignore the holy God, the righteous God, the God who is full of wrath. We ignore him. Thereby, we have diminished the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And we have no concept of really how precious it should be to us Monday through Saturday. Right? How paramount and precious it should be to us on a daily basis. So the six texts I just read you, that's my introduction to the book of Revelation because the book of Revelation is full of dread, terror, and horror. It is Yahweh's promise to all who remain His enemies. Now, he's offered the remedy. We'll talk about it next week. But for all who have chosen to disregard the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross, terror and horror await. God says, Romans 12, 19, famous passage, you know it. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. I'll do it, God says. This is personal. I will do it. Every man, woman, boy, and girl that sits outside the finished work of Jesus, God says, I will repay. I will do it. The prophet adds, the vengeance and recompense of God will come, Isaiah 35, 4. The Lord tells us how he will bring human history on this damned planet to a close. Again, you know, it's the 66th book. And John tells us as he writes in that revelation, This is Revelation 6, 16 and 17. All men everywhere will cry out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Lamb phobia is no exaggerated fear and dread. As we talked about, Multiple times I quoted R.C. Sproul, famous American theologian. Um, Meeting the angry lamb will be the greatest trauma a man or woman can experience. 
If we come into the presence of Yahweh apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, it will be terror and it will be horror. I hope I can hand this off to you. Terror and horror before Yahweh. This is what he says. He's not apologizing. He is not apologizing. This is what he says, but his church completely ignores it on your average Sunday. Completely ignored. That God speaks like this about his fierce judgment, about what your sin and my sin deserve. We heard it. Men will desire suicide before they have to stand before the angry lamb. But we talked a lot about it last week, didn't we? Death is no escape. It only gets worse. Post-funeral, it only gets worse for those who are outside of Jesus Christ. It only gets worse. We're talking about eternal conscious punishment. You don't have to like it. But it's what the Bible teaches. It's what Jesus Christ says. You know, the Bible, and I think all you guys know this, it's, the test is never if you like it or not. That's not the test. The test is, is it in the text? Is this what God has preserved? Is this the revelation God has preserved for me to hear and respond to? That is... Always the test. So it's not our goal, obviously, here this morning to parse the cryptic particulars of the book of Revelation. It's above my pay grade. I couldn't do it anyway, but I want us to get some limited sense of the weight and sweep and scope of what God says he will do on the last day. Let me just say it right now. It's it's in my notes later on, but I'll just go ahead and say it because I think it's important. Revelation is a difficult book. Some really smart guys can do a good job with it. Um, But I read a theologian one time and he said something I really liked. He said, what you're supposed to take away from Revelation is that judgment's coming. This is what you're supposed to take away. If you can take this away from Revelation, uh, you've comprehended the message, the macro message, right? There's a lot of stuff there. there. There's a whole lot of stuff there. I'm not smart enough to tease it out for you, okay? But I am smart enough to say this. Judgment's coming. Christ is coming. Every eye will see him. You will see him. You will stand before him. He will either be your savior or he will be your judge. Revelation. 30 seconds. I think that theologian is right. We just need to take away the macro lesson here. Judgment is coming. The 66th book is replete with wrath, vengeance, recompense, and terror. These are biblical words. Those four words are biblical. The wages of the unrepentant are coming to him. And God never misses payday. The wages are coming. It's it's mentioned several times in the book of Revelation. What will the unbeliever receive? What will he receive? Justice according to what? His deeds, right? His deeds, her deeds. God will deal with you with regard to your deeds. And we've talked about the white lie. If you're guilty of a white lie, you go to hell forever. You know, I thought about it. I was running this week and I was thinking, you know, what's worse than that? There is something worse that seems benign to most people. Simple indifference toward the Lord Jesus Christ will send you to hell forever. Indifference. I'm just indifferent. I don't hate him. I don't speak against him. I just have no affection for him. 
What is the, the, what is the law? How do we summarize the law that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And you've got, you got people, obviously the unbelievers, but you've got people walking in churches on Sunday. They're indifferent to Christ, practically. Beloved, we don't want to stand before the angry Lamb. God says through his prophet, the day of vengeance is in my heart. Isaiah 63, 4. It's in my heart, God says. This is personal. It's personal. Every creature who has been indifferent toward me or has sinned in a rebellious way against me. So I always like to ask this question. What are the saints? And it's interesting, the answers I get. What are the saints under the altar of God praying for in the book of Revelation? What are they praying for? Some of you know you've read the book. What are they praying for? Vengeance. Vengeance. Now, your modern average churchgoer would think, certainly the saints that have been martyred in heaven are not praying for vengeance. That's exactly what they're praying for. They're praying for vengeance, right? They're praying for vengeance. Have you ever prayed for vengeance? Have you ever prayed for it? Let's talk a little bit about what that might look like. These are those who have been martyred for the faith. They have been martyred for the faith. You know, Revelation 6.10, this is their prayer. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Jesus Christ talked about it like this, Luke 18, 7 and 8. Shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. God says it's coming. It's coming. Jesus Christ says it is inevitable and it is inescapable. He will not tarry long. So have you ever prayed for God's vengeance, your average pious church member would never pray such a prayer. They would, it would never enter their mind to pray such a prayer. Be beneath them. It's not sufficiently, what? I guess pious is the word. It doesn't seem proper. The saints in heaven are praying for it. I think we need to take a lesson here, beloved. I think you and I both could take a lesson in our prayer life here. And I want to continue to expand on that thought as we work through the text. For the nominal Christian, vengeance talk is not only unpleasant, it is overtly offensive. And I want to get this sentence right. I want to say it to you. It is the result of the sub-biblical, post-Christian, contemporary view of God, which portrays Him as merely love, only love, always love. The one-note churches we have talked about throughout this series. So God has a taste for this. And God is, God's saints who have been martyred and who are under the altar in heaven have a taste for this. I'm asking you, do you have a taste for this? Do you have a taste for this? Only true believers love and understand this prayer in Revelation 6. The nominal Christian has no concept of how they could ever relate to this. 
Only one who's being conformed to the image of Jesus, Romans 8, 29, understands this. Only one with a raging thirst for God's righteousness to shine forth comprehends this. Only one who has tasted the hostility and disdain of a God-hating world understands what this is about. Only one who desires to see God glorified in rendering His perfect justice truly values this truth revealed in the Bible. When I saw this, some things changed for me. The saints in heaven are praying for God's vengeance. Something changed for me. It made me realize how blasphemous it is to ignore this aspect of God. It's, it's, it's not just insult. For, for a long time, I used to think, well, this is, this is an insult to God that we have edited His, His character. It's not just insult. It's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. I'm convinced that is how the Lord sees it. So the true believer knows that with God's final judgment, the wicked will be cast off, ushering in everlasting righteousness for the redeemed in the new heaven and new earth. Who doesn't long for that? Right? Who doesn't? What true believer doesn't long for that? I do long for that. And the more I watch the media, the more I long for it. I don't know about you. David sings, in these things, Psalm 6410, the righteous man will be glad, right? The righteous man will be glad on the last day when God shows forth his glory in judgment before his enemies. So we will be very, very glad on the last day. Those of us who are in Christ, we will join the multitudes in heaven. Now listen, I want you to hear this. The multitudes in heaven are singing this. Hallelujah, hallelujah, as God avenges the blood of his bondservants and deals out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. Revelation 19, 1 through 3, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8. I'm going to read it to you again. Hallelujah, hallelujah, as God avenges the blood of his bondservants, that's the Revelation passage, and deals out retribution to those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel, that's the Thessalonians passage. So God loves to answer this avenging prayer of his people. Let's not be naive. Let's not varnish over the hard things that we learn about God in the Word. Let's not varnish over it. Let's not apologize. Let's not be embarrassed. Shame on you if you're embarrassed. Shame on me if I'm embarrassed to truly and utterly proclaim who God has revealed Himself to be. Shame on you if you're embarrassed to tell your friends and colleagues and neighbors and family members about the angry lamb. How does God convert? How does He convert? By His Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of Christ. Listen, you're supposed to, you're supposed to, this stuff's supposed to be in your heart, and you can just share it with people. When the moment arises, you can just share it with people. God converts with His Word. And you're supposed to have it stored up in your heart so you can go out in the world and share the Word. This is our job. It's the only job ultimately that matters. 
This is a job that, you know, will pour, will, the fruit of it will pour into all eternity. I'm not discounting fatherhood and motherhood and doing a good job. If you actually love Jesus Christ, all of those things will flow, right? It flows from knowing him and loving him. We know what he's commanded us to do as fathers and mothers and employees and uh, friends and neighbors. These are, these are, we know what we're commanded to do. And that's part of our worship as well. So God will be glorified in ensuring that all moral accounts will be perfectly settled. And as I've said repeatedly in this series, nobody gets away with anything. Be encouraged. Whoever has done you harm, whoever has done you wrong, whether it's individually, on a governmental level, whatever it is, Nobody gets away with anything. The angry lamb is coming and he will render judgment. So we understand that your average denominational God would never entertain such a prayer. Yahweh does entertain such a prayer. The pseudo Christs that are preached in many, many places will not be present on the last day. Only the angry lamb. So parenthetically, this has to be said. You, you know this, right? Yahweh's God, you're not. You're not God. You understand this? You're not God. You never take vengeance. You leave it to God. You never do it. That's the command of God to you as his people. You never do it. And I'm just parenthetically going to make this point. Romans 12, 19 to 21, you know the text. Never take your own vengeance, but leave room for what? The wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will reap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is your job. This is your job on this, you know, your temporal, shall we say, sojourn on this planet. This is your job. You know the famous verse from 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but we are to give a blessing instead. This is the call. Clearly, it is how God has called us to live as aliens and exiles on the planet. But, here's what I want to say, but, but when God begins to draw the final curtain on this condemned planet, the billions of God-rejecting rebels living on it, we will rejoice in His holy wrath. We do not take vengeance. We leave it to God. It's coming. We will rejoice with the holy angels and saints in heaven. Praise God. Hallelujah. His righteousness will shine forth. I just want to lovingly say, if you can't see yourself getting jazzed about it, I think you've got work to do. I think you have... Shall we say you've got a hole in your theology somewhere? If you can't see yourself rejoicing, singing hallelujah, hallelujah to the angry lamb who brings justice and righteousness, right? To every man for every deed. Perfect justice. If you can't see yourself getting, you know, pretty fired up about that, I think you've got a hole in your theology, just to be honest. I think you've got a hole in your theology. You have not seen God as he has presented himself in Scripture. Sadly, as we all know, Revelation doesn't get a lot of attention in the, the modern 
Church, you know, some people call it allegory, metaphor, parable, myth, legend, fable. The attitude of most of the modern church is, so what? Okay, that's the last book. We never go there. We don't ever look at that. We never preach on that. We never study that. So what? Uh, I'll just say this. I think it's important to remember John's description of the one that gave him this revelation. And we remember how terrifyingly magnificent he was because John hit his face as a dead man. Here's the, here's the one who gave John the revelation. You know the text, but I'm going to read it to you. Revelation 1, 13 to 16. He was one like a son of man, girded across his breast with a golden girdle, and his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. How would you like to stand before this being? Having to give an account for your deeds. How would you like to stand before that being? Without being reconciled to that being. Can you imagine? John, who personally knew Jesus Christ, fell as a dead man. I'm saying he personally knew him as a human being. He walked with him. He ate with him. He prayed with him. He loved him. They loved each other in a human way. But when he saw him glorified, he fell as a dead man. We're supposed to take something away from this. We're supposed to learn from this. John goes on to talk about this one who gave the revelation. Myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands will, will worship him in heaven. Revelation 5, 11 through 13. Let me just read it to you or excerpts from that. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor, glory and dominion. Some say, so what about revelation? So this Christ is coming back and he's going to judge. He's going to judge. This is the macro takeaway of the book of Revelation. Secondly, I would say to the skeptic or those who discount the book of Revelation, is there's a stunning warning to all who hear or read the book regarding God's end-time revelation. John writes this, If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away, now here's the problem. It's not that the modern church is adding to, it's that the modern church is taking away. Listen, if you get in, when you leave here, if you get into a church who can't preach the book of Revelation, you know, straight up, you just got to run. You're getting scammed. It's a false church. It's a false teacher, right? So he says, He's coming to crush his enemies. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. So, you, you, you guys that know the book, where does, where does judgment begin? Where does judgment begin in the book of Revelation? Who knows? In the church? It's just like Old Testament Israel? When they went off into apostasy? God brought judgment. 
In the book of Revelation, the Lord begins with the church. 1 Peter 4, 17 to 18. It's a perfect entree into the book, um, the last book of the Bible. Let me just read it to you. 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. For it, is, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is difficult that the righteous is saved, what shall become of the godless man and the sinner? So those of you who know a little, book, a little bit about the book of Revelation, he addresses seven churches directly. Five, to say the least, are falling short. Ephesus had left its first love. Pergamon and Thyatira were tolerating sin. Sardis was, in the Lord's words, dead in need of repentance. And last was the infamous church of Laodicea. Laodicea is the atrophied church. It means it has wasted away. It has lost its vigor and effectiveness. This is the church in the 21st century. Apart from the remnant church that loves God in all of His fullness. A Laodicean type church in the 21st century, it still bears the name, a Christian name, but it really doesn't believe much of anything anymore. It uses biblical words and concepts, but it's just pretty much religious routine. It still meets on Sunday, but they don't really know why. They're pretty much clueless on exactly what it all means. In the Revelation, John writes that the Laodicean church professed to be rich, and they were rich in a material sense. But you remember, you remember what God said about them in a spiritual sense. You are wretched, you are miserable, you are poor, blind, and naked. Revelation 3.17. This is, this, okay, it's just, like, it's just like the Old Testament Jews. This is a church that professes to worship Jesus Christ. Okay? So let's not be naive. Let's not have some maudlin view of what the church is. There's always been false teachers. The, the false church began to emerge almost immediately because we see in the New Testament that almost every book, the apostles are talking about false teachers. It's already happening before the Bible's even finished. And we know that it's epidemic in this day and age. And of course, you know the, the famous verse. You know the famous verse, Revelation 3, 15 to 16. Christ says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God gags on the nominal church. It's what I mean when I tell you it would be better for you and for any person you know who professes to be a Christian who's not real, it would be better for you not to play a game. This is dangerous. You remember what Jesus told the, the Pharisees? He says, it'll be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah. You've seen and you've heard. Don't come in here and play a game with God. I, I say that to you lovingly. Don't come in here and do that. This is no small matter to God. 
In fact, I think if we have some deep understanding of Scripture, we understand He's greatly offended. So the pseudo-church makes God gag. It's all show and no go. The nominal is the new normal, right? So the average professed Christian's life today looks exactly like the unbeliever's life, except for the inconvenience of going to church. It looks exactly the same, except for the inconvenience of going to church. Beloved, we know these things ought not be so. We know this is an offense to our great God. But there's that picture there in Revelation 3. It's shocking. Do you know the picture? Jesus is knocking on the door that someone might let him in. In his own church, let me in. He cries out to them to repent. Repent, right? Judgment is coming. Repent. This is the loving message. You know, these churches that never will preach this, we obviously know they don't love their people at all. They don't love them. They just want to keep them coming back. You know, keep paying my salary, man. Let's keep the maintenance up on the building. That's really what I want for you, from you. If you change your life or not, I don't really care. I don't care what it's going to be like for you on the last day when you stand before the angry lamb. I don't really care. That's what the average pulpit is saying without saying it, okay? I do care. Your blood will be on my hands. Okay, I have to answer to Yahweh about how I preach to you, okay? You're not even going to be there. It's going to be between me and him. And your blood's on my hands if I don't tell you the truth. So, yeah, I would rather go work at Home Depot than stand up here and play games with you, okay? It'd be a lot safer for me to go work for Home Depot than to play games with the Word of God. You know, Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13. He said, there'll be tares in the church, right? Tares among the wheat. Let me read it to you real quick. Matthew 13. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and the Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom the stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, Matthew thirteen twenty-four to 42. Now, you guys know that the day of the Lord is not a literal day. It's an indeterminate season of God's judgment. So in order to get some sense of revelation, this is revelation in two minutes. Okay. I'm just going to read you some scripture. All right. Revelation in two minutes. The apostle writes, behold, an ashen horse. And now listen, what I'm going to say to you is I read this text. I want you to I want you to put yourself there. I want you to get some small sense of the terror and horror that that flows off these texts. Okay? Behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death and Hades, was following after him, and authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and pestilence. A fourth of the earth. Okay, and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black. Okay, are you full of horror yet? The sun became black and the moon became like blood. Do you have terror yet? And the the stars of the sky fell to the earth and every mountain and island was moved out of their place. And this was followed with peals of thunder and sounds of flashes flashes of, of lightning. 
and hail and fire and a third of the earth was burned up. Are you feeling the terror and the horror of God's judgment? And a third of the sea became blood. That's Revelations, Revelation chapters 6 and 8. Revelation chapters 8, 9 and 14, some excerpts. And a third of the sun and moon and stars were darkened. Demonic beings were loosed from the pit, but they were not permitted to kill anyone. Why were they not permitted to kill anyone? That they may torment those who are being judged. It actually says that they may torment them. In those, those days, listen, men will seek for death and they cannot have it. Is that terror? Is that horrifying? They want death, but they cannot have it. They will long to die, but death flees from them. And four angels were released so that they might kill a third of mankind by three plagues. And men will drink from the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and they will be tormented with fire and brimstone forever and ever. Terror and horror. Revelation chapters 16 and 18, some excerpts. And the men gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And there were flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as had, there had not been since men had become upon the planet. Pestilence and mourning and famine, torment, weeping and mourning persisted. I'm going to read some excerpts from Revelation chapter 19. This one is pretty famous. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. Do you want to stand before this being? His, his eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And his name was written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Revelation 19. Lastly, just a few excerpts from Revelation chapter 20. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it and from whose presence heaven and earth fled away. Do you want to stand before this being? Do you want to stand before this God? Before whom the presence, earth and heaven fled away? There's no way for a finite mind to conceive of the terror and the horror here to have to stand before a holy God. No place was found for them, and I saw the dead and the great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened. Can you imagine the book being opened and you don't know him? Which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books. It's logged. It's down. Unless it's been washed away by the blood, right? According to their deeds, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And we talked about that at length.
last week. Revelation. Three minutes. So, what's the macro message here? Judgment is coming. It cannot be avoided. No one, no one gets a reprieve. There are no stays. There are no pardons. Judgment is coming. And you will be judged according to your deeds, lest you be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards, 18th century American theologian, was right. God has had it on his heart to show to both angels and men how terrible his wrath is. So how many will perish in the end times judgment? Billions. How many will be damned? Billions. Jim, how do you know this? Jesus tells us in Matthew, is it chapter 6? There are few. There are few who find it. Right? Talking about the narrow way and the broad way. There are few. I'm not saying that God won't save billions, but I think we're learning here. I don't know how many people have actually lived on the planet from, from the garden till now. But are we afraid to say it? That God's wrath will fall on billions? Does this offend you? Why does it offend you? If it's true, why does it offend you? Are you more compassionate than God? You know, I get this. I hear this. I hear this undercurrent. People don't use these words, but you get this undercurrent. How could God do that? I would not do it. I would be more compassionate than God. You know why you can talk like that? It's because you have no concept of how holy He is. If you had any idea what true holiness was, you would never talk like that. You would never talk like that. You are not more compassionate than God. How many of you have given up your firstborn? How many of you have given up your firstborn to death for the salvation of another? How many of you have done that? How many of you have done that? Beloved, this is a dangerous mindset. Don't let your mind go there. This is a disdain for God's holiness and His glory in the exercise of His perfect righteousness and justice. You know how Paul said it. What is all this about? God works all things after the counsel of His will to the praise of His glory. It's all to the praise of His glory. Again, it doesn't matter if we like it. It's to the praise of His glory. And God will be glorified in the damned. He'll be glorified in the damned. And He'll be glorified in the redeemed. He's going to be glorified. This is the God who is. If you don't like the God who is, go do something else. This is the God who is. This is the God who resides in the Bible. Let us have some integrity. You know, you know let's just have some integrity. Okay? If we're going to call ourselves Christians, let's just have some integrity. That would be my appeal. That would be my appeal. So we've seen in this series repeatedly, God will be glorified in judgment and in Redemption. Jesus is coming. Judgment is coming. Wrath is coming. Vengeance is coming. The second death is coming. Every eye will see it. You will see it. And every man will either delight in God's vengeance, as do the saints in heaven, or we will be swept into hell by it. Let me close like I closed last week. You know these great words from God through the prophet Ezekiel. God says, as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. God says, turn back, 
Turn back from your evil ways. Why then should you die? Ezekiel 33, 11. So there's a legitimate open call, right? God's calling to his creation. Why then should you die? Come. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would, I would that you would turn from your ways. Turn. Turn, right? So next week, we will see the amazing thing that God has done by offering us redemption through the God-man, through the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this always blows my mind. I have a hard time preaching at Christmas. I have a hard time preaching on Easter. It's God in a manger, and it's God on a cross and your Christianity small to you, you've not understood. You've not understood anything. If it's small to you, if it doesn't change the way you live every day, you've not understood. God is in a manger and God is on a cross. And all that we've talked about for eight weeks drives us to the foot of the cross. We need a great Savior. We must have a great Savior. And guess what? We have one. We have one. Let's pray together.